Okay, well, we're going to carry on this morning in our study through the Gospel of Mark. Let's just bow our hearts one more time, shall we, as we come humbly before God's Word. Well, Lord, you know what you have to say to each one of us this morning. And the Father, before even the foundation of the world, Lord, you knew that we would be here on this day, that we'd be able to praise you as we have been able to do, and now that we can sit at your feet. And so, Lord, we ask that you speak to us, and more importantly, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive. Lord, that we would grow together this morning in knowledge and in grace. Father, just take my words and and use them for your purpose, Lord. May it not be my thoughts or desires, Lord, just in your spirit, we pray. Just minister to each one of us now. Lord, that we would grow. We just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're carrying on this journey through the Gospel of Mark. Um, and again, I know it's very small print. I don't expect a bit to read it from there. But they are the miracles of Jesus as listed in the Gospels. Typically 40 uh, tend to be catalogued uh, by most uh, scholars. Some people kind of have a few less than that, but then they tend to miss out the resurrection and things, which I kind of think is one of the biggest miracles in all honesty, so I think we should include that. Um, but you can see where the, the yellow line is. That's kind of where we are. Interestingly enough, we've gone through so many miracles in the, the early or the first eight chapters of Mark, because we're kind of a halfway point now uh, of this gospel. Um, and actually the last half of the gospel, we don't see as, near, as many miracles. Um, so Mark kind of changes his tacked a little bit. Uh, He spent so much of the the gospel so far just being so overwhelmed and excited, seeing what Jesus was doing and just trying to convey these things, uh, almost tripping over himself. As we've said, probably sat at the feet of Peter listening to the the Peter recount these things and scribbling them down and just wanting to share with us what Jesus was like and what Jesus did. Uh, And it's one thing after another, this continuous uh, presentation uh, that Mark gives us. So we're going to go now into chapter 8, that's as far as we've got. So if you open your Bibles and turn to chapter 8, you can follow through, the words are up on the screen. But we're going to be looking this morning to start with at this feeding of the 4,000. Now this is quite fascinating for a number of reasons. Uh, it's the second miraculous feeding that we have in Scripture. Uh, we have obviously saw the feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6. And, you know, at the time we're told that there was just, the, it was the 5,000 men that were counted. So at that point, there could have been easily uh, 8,000, 10,000, or even more, possibly even 15,000 if, you know, there was a, a man, a woman, and a child for every family that was represented. Interestingly, from what we understand, the 5,000 seemed to be exclusively Jews who were there because of the area they came from. This is coming from uh, the Decapolis over the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which had a very large Gentile population at that time. So it's quite probable that a lot of this group that are going to be at this feeding uh, were Gentiles uh, that are going to be there. So they're two very distinct things. Um, the 5,000 we know were away from their homes for just one day uh, with this 4,000. We know that they've been away. We're going to find out they've been away from their home for three days. Um, so arguably even hungrier. And so definitely need of sustenance and so on. And really through all of this, Jesus will emphasize his abundance that he will meet our needs. you know, And it's something we see throughout Scripture, but portions like this just remind us, because the question is, well, why is this included? Why do we have this? Well, clearly it's an incredible event, but there's more to it than just going, wow. It's realizing that Jesus does meet our needs, and he meets our needs on every level. So let's look at the text and see what uh, the Lord has for us here. So uh, verse 1, in those days... 
the multitude being very great. Now we've looked at this so many times, this huge crowd has been following Jesus around. And having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and said unto them, I have compassion on the multitude. Isn't that just wonderful to start with? You know, it, it would be so easy. You know what it's like after a, a long day? You know, you kind of don't want to show compassion. You want to sit down and chill out. You want to shut the world off. And the phone might ring and you think, oh, I don't want to answer that. That's how we are. But that's not how Jesus is. Jesus doesn't grow weary and, and tired in that sense. Of course, in his physical body, he needed rest and so on, just as we do. But Jesus had a drive that we can know too through the Spirit that kept him going. You know, it's that phrase, that sentence, I, I've, so many times I've quoted this, but I just think it's so true that Oswald Chambers says that if we get out of touch with God, the sense of responsibility becomes overwhelmingly crushing. You know what? And I think you and I spend a lot of our time there. You know, that we kind of just don't quite get to where we should be with God. Maybe we haven't spent time in the morning before we set out about our day with the Lord. Or maybe through the day we've kind of just allowed the Lord to just kind of move from our thoughts and other things have kind of clouded our judgment and the decisions we've made. And then we come to a place when we should show good grace and the love and the compassion of the Lord. And we don't. And sometimes we, we then start to feel guilty and stressed because of the reality is, if we are walking with the Lord, if we're walking by faith, if we're walking in the way, as we read in Psalm 119, if we're walking in the way, it's a joy. Every opportunity becomes something that we look at as an opportunity for God to minister and work through us. You know, there's another quote of Oswald Chambers. He says that, you know, in paraphrasing things the Lord says is, you know, I reckon on you for extreme service with no explanation on my part and no complaining on yours. You know, I love that. You know, are we in that place with God that, you know, we can just step out into our days and we don't complain whatever the Lord throws at us. You know, every challenge, every difficult person that maybe come across our path. You know, you see so much in Jesus here of the work of the Holy Spirit that is there for all of us. So Jesus has compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way. For diverse of them came from afar. So Jesus is saying, but some of these have come from a really long way away. And if we send them away now, notice send them away fasting, send them away without eating food. What a difference it is the fasting, which is simply no food, you know, because of a situation or circumstance like this, and the fasting when we willingly separate ourselves to God and we choose to go without food or whatever else. You know, when we choose to fast for the Lord, he sustains us. Here, after three days, Jesus is saying, they're going to faint. They, they, they haven't got the strength to go on. And you realize that when we fast in the biblical sense of, of seeking God. You know, Sim was talking a few weeks ago about temptation. You know, and he was talking about fasting in that. You know, and fasting, as we've said before, it's not a hunger strike. It's not something we do to try and get God's attention. The whole reason we should fast as Christians is to get closer to God. 
And he sustains us supernaturally. For here he says that for this group that was simply without food, that he's concerned that if they were to go, they, they may not make it. And the disciples answered him, and, and I love this, this response in a sense because it's so much like us. Because it's, you know, we're only a few chapters on, just two chapters from where we see the last miraculous feeding of a multitude with 12 baskets gathered up afterwards. And here we are, just a, a little bit further on in the ministry. His disciples asked him, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Do you see the saying, Lord, it can't be done. That, that's what they're saying. And, and really, we should never put sentences like that together. How can we go to God, who can do all things, and say, it can't be done? And yet, I think all of us, again, are very much like this. Because we are so prone to forget what God has done. We're prone to forget what God has done in our lives as individuals, but also in, in our life as a fellowship or in the body of Christ. We see God do some incredible things, and we've seen it within this fellowship. We've seen it in our own lives. And yet, almost just round the next corner, something happens, and well, this, this one can't be solved. You know, we looked a, a few weeks ago, back in Second uh, Chronicles 14 and 16, about King Asa. You know, faced with this impossible situation with this, this million man Ethiopian army bearing down on Israel. And he goes to the Lord. And the Lord delivers him. And then a little bit further on, he gets another problem. And he goes running to man for help. You know, we, we need to remember that whatever the circumstance, whatever the situation, we need to be going to the Lord. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here, the disciples just, you know, well, well, how can we solve this problem? without rolling it back on Jesus and saying, well, Lord, you can do this. And he asked them, how many loaves have you? And they said, seven. Now, it's translated seven, but I'm kind of guessing that they said, we've only got seven. As if to say, Jesus, this isn't enough. One of the Redivosal Chambers, again, if... God is the God that you know him to be when you are closest to him. What an impertinent worry is. Say it again. If God is the God that you know him to be when you're closest to him, think about the moments in your life when you have been really close to God. How can you worry? Because God is the same the whole time. We change. We're very much subject to the circumstances we go through and they, they kind of affect the way we think. But God doesn't change. God is the same, and the same God that you knew in some previous storm or situation is the same now. As also Chambers says, what an impertinence worry is. That's why we're told in Philippians, yeah, we shouldn't worry. Don't worry about anything. I used to have it on a plaque on our wall at home. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Tell God your needs and don't forget to thank him for his answers. That's the paraphrase, but that's what we should be doing. Don't worry about anything. What we tend to do is worry about everything and then forget to thank God when he does answer us anyway. No, we should not worry because God is the same. And you know, when God asks us a question, Jesus asking these questions, it's not because God needs some information that we have. You know, have you ever realized that when God asks you a question, either be it through scripture, you read something, you feel God asking a question, or, or just whatever, that, that God's asking you something. It's not because God wants you to help him out. It's because God is trying to get you to think. 
Why does Jesus ask this question? Do you think Jesus didn't know the answer to this already? Jesus even knew the thoughts of the Pharisees. We've seen that already. So this issue here with the bread wasn't the real the, the thing. Jesus asked this question because he's trying to get his disciples to think. And the questions that the Lord asks of us, when we go into trials or difficult situations, those questions he asks us. Well, again, one of the things Chuck Mister has said so many times, I remember listening to commentaries of his, and he says, the Lord will ask you the same question every day, in a different way, but the same question. That question is, do you trust me? Every day, the Lord will bring about some sort of situational circumstance in your life, and the question is from God, do you trust me? And the moment you go, yes, Lord, I do trust you. We, we may not see the other side. We may not see where the Lord is taking us. Verse 6, and he commanded the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. He didn't need the seven loaves. Jesus can create out of nothing. You know, this world was made out of nothing. That wedding at Cana in Galilee, where the water was turned into wine some miraculous event the Lord didn't need these loaves but you know the Lord will take that which we bring take that which we have he doesn't need it but he allows us to be part of what he's doing what a privilege he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and broke and gave to his disciples to set before them and they did set them before the people and and we, we looked at this a little bit in Chapter 6, we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000. And you can imagine the first disciple, and it may well have been Peter, we don't know. You know, you go up with a, with a basket, you know, and, and suddenly there's this food there. So he walks away, and, and Andrew's thinking, oh, well, that's all the food got. Now what am I going to do? And suddenly he's got his basket full. And then John's behind that thinking, well, great, those two are okay. And they're all going to be looking. And suddenly he's got a basket full, and there's abundance. There's enough for everyone. Every one of those disciples that went up with a basket, Jesus filled their basket and they were able to go out and minister I think there's probably a lesson there somewhere for us you know that sometimes you see someone with a ministry or a gift and you know we almost go oh wow hasn't the Lord blessed that person wouldn't it be lovely to be like the Lord has given so much to all of us you know we don't all have the same gifts that's true the scripture is very clear we all have gifts God has given us gifts what are you doing with them Have you gone to the Lord with that open basket, expecting the Lord to fill it so that you can go and minister to people? That's what we should be doing. That's how the church functions. You know, sadly, there's a lot of people in the church that are kind of the ones that are sitting down on the grass, happy to take all the time. I'm not saying this church, other churches, you know. But isn't it the case sometimes that we're quite happy to take? But the Lord wants us to give and bore you with analogies but you've heard them many times I'm sure the, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea the Sea of Galilee is a, it's this wonderful sea teeming with life you know you've only got your, put, your foot in the water and you see fish swimming around you it's wonderful because the Sea of Galilee has the Jordan River flowing into it and it flows out of it it's continually taking in but it's continually giving out as well but you take the Dead Sea the Dead Sea is taking in but it then never gives out it's dead barren there's nothing living there you know it's very much like a believer in a sense who would just continue to take and not give out in fact i say believer because 
Strictly speaking, Jesus came and appointed us that we should bear fruit. If you are a believer, you have to bear fruit. If you don't bear fruit, you're not a believer. If you're not doing something to edify the body, you really have to look at your own life and question, are you truly saved? Because Jesus said that those that he calls, those that he anoints and appoints, will bear fruit. And I think it's impossible for somebody who is filled with the Holy Spirit to not bear fruit. I think the quantity would change, certainly. We should be all bearing fruit. And we should be like the disciples here, just going to Jesus, kind of expectantly. Can you imagine after, because I'm sure with, with kind of 4,000 men plus the others here, you know, it wasn't just the, the Peter and James, John, Andrew and the others, just kind of one basket each. They, they would have come back a second time. Could you imagine that feeling second time as Peter's coming back? And as he's walking back to Jesus to get his basket full up again, he's seeing, you know, Matthew or Bartholomew go past, and their baskets are full. And so he goes back to Jesus, and once again, it's full. And straight away, he's going out. Did you not see what happens? The more you go back to Jesus, and he's filling your basket, the more you want to go out and minister. And you can't wait to go back to Jesus again, because you want to go and minister to some more, because there's some more people over there that have not been fed yet. You know, that's not just the work of the pastor. That's the work of all of us in the fellowship. We all need to be out there trying to reach people with the gospel, with the good news, with this food that God is providing. And we read verse 7, And they had a few small fish, and he blessed them and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat, and they were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Jesus meeting their need. You know, these seven baskets, or hampers if you like, uh, full up of leftovers. And just to give you some kind of idea of the scale, these were large baskets. They were used for carrying commercial goods. The, the Greek word we have is uh, is a plated or a reed uh, basket. And they were large enough to hold a person. Um, it's actually the same type of basket, the same word that we have in Acts chapter 9.25 that Paul was lowered over the wall from uh, in Damascus. So this is a large basket. I mean, it would almost been too heavy to lift if it's full up of food. But seven of these large baskets of food left over. That became their packed lunch for the next day or two. You see, in all of this, Jesus, again, is another subtle reminder here that he is the bread of life. And we read that, of course, in John 6. You know, and he deliberately identified himself with the manna that was given in the wilderness, I mean, next to 16, that, that Jesus is just as that manna was. But, you know, that manna had to be taken daily. You know, and our relationship with Jesus, it should be a daily thing. We should daily go back to him to be filled afresh. You know, I love what Adrian shared a, a little while ago about the, the week and the way it pans out and the Sunday being the beginning of the week. And, you know, we need to start with a big breakfast. You know, when I like, when I have a break, when I think of breakfast, you know, I'm not thinking of a bit of cereal or muesli. You know, I, I'm thinking of a proper breakfast with meats and, and things, you know, sausages and bacon and eggs and, you know, that, that, that's breakfast. But that's what we should be doing on a Sunday. We come together. You know, and it's, it's a buffet breakfast. It's as much as you can eat. That's what it should be like when we come together at the start of our week so that we're ready to go out into that week. I love what you shared. Thank you for that. But Jesus, this bread, 
that we need to daily go to him and be filled. Even the place that Jesus is born, Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. His whole life is echoing this theme. And of course, underscored at the Last Supper where he said, take it, this is my body. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus quoting, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word proceeds from the mouth of God. We then move on. There's another one. He's straight away. He's, you know, Mark kind of hardly pausing for breath. Just gets this out and then straight away he's going to tell us the next thing. He entered into a ship, Jesus says, with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth. Here they are again. Uh, we've, we've missed them the last few verses, haven't they? They're back again. Uh, and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. It's, it's almost tiring. As you read through this, you start to see this pattern. You know, and it's incredible. I mean, you saw on the, the list at the beginning how many miracles we've seen so far. Yeah, and it started way back, we said, with the, the leper being healed, and that created a stir because he had to go down to the temple in Jerusalem and show himself to the high priest. They weren't expecting that. You know, and then all the other miracles that have been taking place, even in the presence of these Pharisees. You know, in the synagogue, the man with the withered hand. You know, and all these other incredible events and multitudes. I mean, Mark's only recording some of them, but he's already alluded to the fact that many were healed. Many were delivered. And the Pharisees come forth now and they're asking questions. They're looking for a sign. But notice what it says, tempting him. They weren't really looking for a sign. They're just looking for something they can use against him. The the signs were everywhere. There was an abundance of information, if that's what they were trying to find, to prove to them once and for all that Jesus Christ was no ordinary human being, that he was sent from God. He was the one that the Old Testament scriptures have prophesied was coming. He was the Messiah. But they didn't want to accept that. They rejected that. And so they're asking for some other sign. Yet whatever sign, whatever evidence could be presented, it wasn't going to be good enough. You know, we can prove the Bible to be true in so many different ways. You know, we can prove the Bible to be true scientifically. We can prove it to be true geographically. All the details we're given show beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is an inspired document that man could not have accomplished. From a historical perspective, everything recorded in the Bible, we know has been verified and can be proven. And we've got books at the back by Dr. Bill Cooper, and I quote in a moment from Dr. Robert or Professor Robert Dick Wilson. From an archaeological perspective, how many times have people said, well, the Bible's not true because, and then suddenly somebody finds something and they go, well, actually the Bible was right after all. You've only got to go to the British Museum. The British Museum is full of archaeological evidence showing that everything the Bible speaks about is true. From a prophetic perspective, there is no other book in the world that speaks prophetically. There's no other religious or, or so scriptures by any other religion that has prophecy in it. The Bible is unique in that regard. And the prophecies in the Bible true 
they're unfolding before our eyes. From an astronomical perspective, we can show the Bible to be true. In fact, you know, the ancient cultures, even Adam onwards, from what we understand, would have used the stars to tell the gospel. We don't use that now. We don't need it now. We have the word of God. But mathematically also, we were talking a little bit about some of these things at our Bible study on Thursday evening. There is so much evidence. But, you know, the evidence on its own is not enough. I remember hearing, uh, I think it was Ken Ham, uh, was doing a radio interview. And uh, somebody has said, you know, about, they're talking about evidence and so on. And he said, okay, he said, let me ask you a question, he said, before we start. He said, what evidence would you accept he said, I, I would want to prove to you that the Bible is true, that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. But what evidence would you accept? And he kind of floored his opponents because that was the question they weren't ready for. They were ready to knock down every single argument he presented and say, oh, I don't agree with that because I don't agree with that, I don't agree with that. But he's like, well, what would you accept? Just like the, the Pharisees here, their mind was already made up. The evidence wasn't the issue. You know, just quickly, just looking at some of these things, from a scientific perspective, the Bible is absolutely spot on. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. We now know there was a beginning. Very clear, very simple. The Bible says that everything creates after its kind. In fact, the Bible goes to pains to repeat that same sentence a number of times through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. After Everything is created after its kind. I mean, it's true, isn't it? I mean, don't we see that when, in the world around us? What does Darwin's book say? His book says that things produce other than their kind. Okay, let's put them side by side. Can you think of anything that produces something other than itself? No, there isn't. I did this at work a little while ago with, uh, with my boss and there was a couple of other uh, non-believers standing by. And uh, they were saying, oh, yeah, the Bible's nonsense and, you know, evolution's true. I said, evolution's ridiculous. I said, I'll prove to you in, in 30 seconds it's stupid. So they took me up on the challenge. I said, okay, what, is, what do you get from, a, from an orange tree? And they kind of looked at me. I said, answer the question. Said, Oranges, okay. What do you get if you put an apple pip in the ground? An apple tree. Are you sure? Yeah. What do you get from a strawberry plant? Anybody? Strawberries. What do you get from a grapevine? Grapes. Yeah. You sure? Am I sure? What would you get from a sunflower seed? Sunflower. Brilliant. None of you said frog. None of you said, you know, anything other than what we know it will produce. The Bible's true. Everything produces after its kind. That's the evolution done away with. It's as simple as that. Anybody ask you questions, just ask them a few. And then ask them to show you something that produces other than itself. There isn't. There is no example in nature in history. So Darwin's book is wrong. God's book is right. The earth is a sphere. Isaiah told us that in chapter 40, verse 22, before we had the technology to prove that to be the case. Matthew Moray, on the basis of Psalm 8, verses 6 to 9, which speaks of pathways in the sea, developed the whole science as we now have it of oceanography. That there are pathways in the sea and there's currents in the sea. Moses was told to circumcise the Jewish boys on the eighth day. How did he know that? That's the day that the vitamin K, the clotting agent, is 110% of normal. It's the best day to do it. How did he know? Trial and error? No. 
See, all these things just go to show. You know, Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. There used to be a process, some of you may remember, of bloodletting. George Washington died that way. They thought if you drain blood out of people, it would help. It doesn't. We know that now. The Bible is absolutely right in all of these things. In the book of Job, it speaks about Arcturus, one of these big stars out there in space. And it speaks about it moving. And people for years said, no, it's, it's not moving. The Bible's wrong. And then they suddenly decide it is moving. But it's moving towards us, which is why we hadn't realized it was moving. Don't worry, it's not going to cause a problem. The sun, in Psalms 19, is also on the move. It's moving around the solar system. Or sorry, the, the universe that we're in. Our solar system itself is moving. You know, there are so many of these things we could refer to. You know, historical evidence. Let me just quote this. I, I, I never get tired of quoting this. But um, Professor Robert D. Wilson, he wrote a book called Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament. This guy, I and mean, we talk about experts, he could read and write 45 ancient Semitic languages. At 25 years old, he could read the New Testament in nine languages. He'd memorized the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. And that puts us to shame sometimes, these things, don't they? How much have we memorized? He'd also memorized many of the Old Testament uh, books as well in Hebrew. Right, and he said this, I can affirm that there is not one page of the Old Testament concerning which you need have any doubt. And he gives us this, he says, for example, to illustrate his accuracy, now think of it from a historical perspective, there are 29 ancient kings whose names are mentioned not only in the Bible, but also on monuments we've uncovered of their own time. There are 195 consonants in those 29 proper names. Yet we find that in the documents of the Hebrew Old Testament, there are only two consonants out of the 195 that have ever been called into question. Uh, The names are all in exactly the same way as they have been inscribed on their monuments, which archaeologists have dated and discovered. Some of these go back 4,000 years. Compare this accuracy, the accuracy of the Bible, with the greatest scholar of his age, the librarian of Alexander in Egypt, about 200 BC. He compiled a catalogue of the kings of Egypt. There was 38 of them in all. Of the entire number, only three or four were recognisable. He was the greatest scholar of his age. He also made a list of the kings of Assyria, and only one case can we tell who he's talking about. And that's not spelt correctly. Or take Ptolemy, who drew up a register of 18 kings of Babylon. Not one of them is properly spelt. You could not make them out at all if you did not know some of the outside sources. If anyone talks about the Bible, ask you about the kings uh, mentioned in it. There are 29 kings referred to 10 different countries among these 29, all of which are included in the Bible and on the monuments. Every one of these is given their right name in the Bible, their right country, their right place, in correct chronological order. Think what this means. What does it mean? It means the Bible's true. If the Bible's true and the details we have can be verified, then it's true in what it says about your life and my life. It's true in what it tells us about the fact that we need a Savior. And this world needs a Savior. And we read in Mark 8, 12, that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Why? Because the issue is not the evidence We could spend all morning, and we've looked at other times about different types of evidence that we can look at. You know, it's overwhelming, it's compelling, it's conclusive. So many have set out on a path to try and disprove the Bible, and they've come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the evidence they've found. 
So the issue is not the evidence. Jesus sighs deeply because there was a problem here, and that problem was what was going on in their hearts. There was a hardness there. It was the same kind of hardness that we see with Pharaoh. It's the same kind of hardness we see with so many people in this world. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek after a sign? And he said, Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. Now Mark leaves it at that point and doesn't add anything else because he wants to get on to the next thing he's going to tell us. But we know because we have this recorded as well in Matthew that we have except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus was saying, I'm not going to do a sign of you. I'm not going to do some kind of trick or something to appease you. Because even if I did, you're going to say that it's the work of the devil or whatever, which is what they've already tried to do. The only thing Jesus concedes to is this sign of the prophet Jonah. What is this sign? In Matthew 12, let me just read the scripture. Uh, Certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah, speaking of Jesus' death and ultimately then resurrection three days later. Interestingly, the sign of the prophet Jonah, there's only eight words of prophecy in the whole of his book. And yet we do understand from other places, two kings, uh, that Jonah prophesied more than just these things. See, the key sign that Jesus points to is Jonah's death and resurrection. And there are a number of scholars, and I would put my hand up and go along with them, not that I'm a scholar, but I would just agree with the scholars that suggest that Jonah actually died in the belly of the, the fish, the whale, whatever you want to call it. Jonah's language is such that, you know, he, he went down, he came down from Joppa, he gets into the, the ship, he goes down to the lower parts of the ship, then he's thrown into the sea, and he goes down to the bottom of the oceans, seemingly right down into the heart of the earth. Seemingly, Jonah actually dies, and he's brought back to life. He's given a second chance at life. I'll leave you to include what you want to in regard to that, but whatever happens, is a miraculous situation. Of course, Jonah then, three days later, is... Uh, back in the land of the living, as it were, and able to go and minister. And Jesus says that's a sign of what he will do. And of course we know that's exactly what will happen for three days, three nights. In Luke 18 we read, Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Notice the things written by the prophets. All the things. You know, even these subtle things like what we have in Jonah. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. So this is the sign. It's interesting because again in Luke, and I think it's Luke 19, isn't it? We have the account of Luke 16, I think the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And that man that dies, that goes to hell, goes to Hades, is in torment. And he cries out and says, you know, please send Lazarus back to tell my, my brothers. And what is it he's told? He's got Moses and the prophets. The law and the prophets. The the law, because the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law deals with that innermost part of us. And if you can't be convinced and convicted by the law, then there's nothing that's going to convict and convince you. 
of the prophets. Well, Peter speaks about the more sure word of prophecy. He compares it to a personal experience, the experience um, of the transfiguration. He says, you know, yes, it, that was a real event, but he said, you know, it's not even better than an experience I had is prophecy. You can't deny it. It's there. It's, you can prove it. You know, we've got something for the mind and there's something for the heart. We've got prophecy to convict the intellect. And you've got the word of God, the law, to convict the heart and the soul. And if those aren't enough, as we're told in that portion in Luke, neither will one rising from the dead make any difference. And of course, Jesus does rise from the dead. I mean, it's the greatest event in the history of the world that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You know, you can look into that, you can investigate it, you can do whatever you want to, you cannot come to any other conclusion than that Jesus rose. You know, some great legal minds have tried to investigate and look at the evidence of the resurrection and they've all concluded the same thing. Jesus Christ really did rise again. He was seen of countless numbers of people alive after he'd been killed by the Romans. Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. And we've, we've talked about this many times and we've looked at the details and so on. There's a wonderful document, uh, the Acts of Pilate, which you can actually get a, you can view online now. I think I've mentioned this before. Even there, Pilate writing to to Caesar, trying to put his understanding of these events, for speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. Mark eight verse thirteen. He left them and entering into the ship again departed to the other side. I think this morning we'll leave it there and next week we'll pick up they're heading back across the Sea of Galilee they're in this area of Gardea and they're going to go back across to more familiar territory for us so um, please read ahead we'll pick it up from there next week let's bow our hearts well Father God we just thank you for your word Lord we thank you for the reminders you've given us this morning that Lord you provide everything we need and you provide in abundance Lord, help us to learn from these lessons. Father, help us to, Lord, be like the disciples or those slow of learning as we are. Lord, to go to you, to receive, to have our baskets filled to overflowing that we can go and minister to those in need. Lord, there are many people in this world, Lord, that are spiritually hungry. They might not make it home if somebody doesn't give them something to eat. Lord, we have a job to do. Give us, Lord, that burning desire to share with them. And Lord, help us to be continually amazed that as we come to you, you fill those baskets to overflowing every time we come. Lord, you will never run out of the resources of the gifts you've bestowed upon your church. Your spirit will never run dry. Lord, help us to learn from these things. And Lord, help us too to be mindful that we will encounter people like the Pharisees whose hearts are hardened. The Lord won't be convinced with any amount of evidence but nevertheless Lord let us keep preaching the gospel to this world that is hungry we ask these things in Jesus name Amen Okay, read ahead may God richly bless you through this coming week let's spend some time together fellowshipping over some teas and coffees